welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and this is another episode of Comfort's Corner. Another exciting look inside the transit industry and what's happening in and around the world when it comes to our response to and recovery from the COVID-19 crisis and what's happening around the transit industry. Exciting to be with you on this new edition of Transit Unplugged for July 8th, the whole week, this is the updated news segment. We've got a great episode for you today. I'm Paul Comfort, uh, industry ambassador and transit evangelist, bringing you some interesting news headlines today. And then we'll have Sean Donaghy, who is the CEO of CTRAN, as our newsmaker interview. We've also got great input from Aliyah Carey on strategic plans, uh, Mike's Minute talking about mentoring, and Timothy Tyron, who reads his chapter four from my book, the future of public transportation. He is the chief safety officer of the MTA in Maryland and in Baltimore. We look forward to a great episode today. And now take, uh, we'll take a look at some of the headline news um, breaking across the wires this week. A lot of transit systems have announced they are starting to return back to normal service levels. As you know, our transit industry was having a great 2019 and 2020 with ridership up quarter over quarter for the last three quarters of 2019, especially in the commuter bus services and commuter train services with a 5% uh, you know, 2019 fourth quarter over the previous year's fourth quarter. And into 2020 was looking great until the COVID-19 crisis came. We took a gut punch from government regulations which required people to get off the bus, get off the train, start working from home. Uh, really strong rules about uh, who could ride and who could not ride public transit around the world, especially here in the United States. Uh, and Canada as well. And now we're seeing some of those uh, recovery efforts coming into place as cities are starting to uh, loosen up some on the restrictions that they put in place. One of them is in Sagamon Mass Transit District in Illinois. They're gonna return to regular service this week as the state and city continues to reopen from the COVID-19 crisis, according to Mass Transit Magazine. This means weekday and Saturday service will return to pre-pandemic schedules and um, they're still going to be requiring face masks or face coverings to ride a bus, and they will continue the rear boarding process, entering the bus from a side door rather than the front, and riders will continue to be free on buses, and they'll make a determination later about re-implementing fares. And so another transit system announcing that they are moving forward with normal service. We're seeing the same thing happening in Britain as I took a look at the, uh, the Times newspaper from Britain uh, uh, late last week, they announced that the minister's public transport is likely to be, be reopened to thousands more passengers this week under government plans to drop official advice warning them to stay away. Ministers are preparing, the article says, to tone down warnings over the use of trains and buses amid criticism from operators and backbench members of parliament that too many services are running empty. And uh, so they, uh, they're going to be monitoring uh, early this week and uh, they hope to begin to loosen up some, according to this article in the Times newspaper. In other news around the industry, some good news uh, from Texas. Our good friend Jorge Cruz Aedo uh, is currently the CEO of the Corpus Christi uh, Transit Authority. Uh, he was a guest on our podcast, Transit Unplugged, this last year of 2019. It was great to make his acquaintance and visit him and his team there in Corpus Christi. They're doing a great job. And now, it's been announced that he will begin his term as president of the Texas Transit Association uh, this year. It's a great association. I actually was scheduled to speak at, as a keynote speaker at their conference this year, but of course that was canceled due to the coronavirus, but congratulations. Um, Cruz says, I'm excited for the opportunity to work with transportation agencies across the state of Texas 
TTA will continue to pursue greater resources for transit organizations, focus on transportation education and equitability for all communities, and build collective support for public transportation throughout the state of Texas. So congratulations, and um, just as a piece of news, TTA presidents can serve up to two consecutive terms of one year. So congratulations to Jorge, who begins his term as uh, president of the Texas Transit Association. Uh, along those lines, a lot of transit associations and groups are holding their conferences now um, kind of virtually. You might be aware that uh, I've talked about, about it a lot online. If you follow me on um, uh, Twitter, at Comfort Paul, or on LinkedIn, or at Paul Comfort 2020 on um, Instagram, etc. I've been talking about a lot of the great opportunities I've had to speak at conferences uh, over the last month, Comotion Miami, the Qtrick Conference, uh, UITP, some webinars sponsored around the world, uh, did one in Australia, um, one for the Middle East and Africa recently. We talked about the future of public transportation. I've got one scheduled coming up uh, later this year for the New York Public Transit Association and several others. And also, a number of uh, public transit agencies and city governments have asked me to come in as a guest speaker um, during their staff meetings. So just this last week, I did one for the Queensland uh, in Australia, where Brisbane uh, is the headquarters there, where their headquarters is located. And uh, it was great. We had about 80 folks online, and I was able to talk about the future of public transportation, uh, along with their uh, director general, Neil Scales, great guy. He's got a lot of uh, a lot of friends in the industry and we know a lot of the same people but it was a great opportunity to drop into their department of transportation road staff meeting and also done that in washington dc and vancouver out there in canada and other places have asked me to drop in i just wanted to let you know that if you're interested in me dropping in maybe doing a 15 to 20 minute presentation on the future of public transportation transit trends etc in this new hopefully post-covid world recovering from covid got a great presentation i can give it's free love to do it i consider my role through Trapeze being one of a transit uh, evangelist, and so happy to talk about that. Just let me know. Drop me a note at paul.comfort at trapezegroup.com or, or direct message me on LinkedIn, etc. cetera. Uh, also working on a great new children's book. I'm excited about that. I worked for two hours with my illustrator this last weekend on um, public transportation from, from uh, Tom Thumb Railroad to Hyperloop and beyond. It's going to be a very exciting book, hopefully released later this year for kind of back to school, uh, be looking for that as well. One final bit of news coming up, uh, it's coming out of Connecticut. My good friend, Dennis Zelensky, who is head of their Connecticut Department of Transportation, announced us last week that he was awarded a Federal Transit Administration Integrated Mobility Grant to deploy, get this, three 40-foot battery electric buses with key automation features on the CT Fast Track Bus Rapid Transit Corridor between New Britain and Hartford, Connecticut. So as you know, we've had these autonomous vehicles, uh, which are smaller vehicles, maybe 12 passenger vehicles, and now they're looking at these larger size vehicles. Uh, we're gonna be talking to Dennis about this. He and I talked a couple weeks ago about it, and he wants to come on the podcast sometime in the near future, uh, and we'll do a whole show talking about his agency, but highlighting what he's gonna be doing with these big autonomous vehicles. Very excited for him and for what this could mean for our industry. Well, that's it for the headline news for today's episode. As I mentioned, stay tuned. We've got an exciting show today on Comfort's Corner with Sean Donaghy, who is the CEO of CTRAN, talking next. And then we'll have Elia Carey, Elia Carey on her strategy plans, Mike's Minute. And then Timothy Tyron, one of the new key transportation leaders in the field of safety, will be reading from his chapter from my book. That's all on this episode of Transit Unplugged. Thank you.
Welcome to Comfort's Corner, where we bring you the inside story and what's happening in and around the transit industry as part of our Transit Unplugged podcast, the world's number one transit podcast, where we interview top CEOs and transit executives who bring it to you straight from the source. And today we're excited to have with us on the episode, Sean Donaghy, who is Chief Executive Officer at CTRAN out there on the West Coast. I'm calling you from the East Coast. Great to have you on the show, Sean. Well, thank you very much. As you probably know, I uh, normally like to do all these uh, interviews in person, and that's what I did for the first 70 of them, but for the last 10 or so, it hasn't quite been possible. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been an interesting couple of months. Yeah, and that's actually what we want to talk to you about in a little bit, but first I want to get the set up, and so tell us a little bit about yourself and your agency. Well, uh, <clears throat> we're CTRAN, we're a suburb actually the one the largest suburb of the Portland Metroplex, but we're actually in Washington uh, State. Um, we're one of the larger systems in the state of Washington. We uh, provide a little over 6 million rides a year. Uh, we have about 470 of the best employees in uh, the world. Uh, we're very proud of that. We were very fortunate to be the um, 2019 APTA Mid-Sized Public Transit System of the Year. Uh, we're very yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're super proud of that. And uh, the reality of that is, is that's not just related to CTRAN. It has a lot to do with the community. We have um, an amazing board of directors who believes in our vision. Um, we have a great uh, economic development platform. Uh, we're very tied closely, we're tied very closely to the uh, education sector, the high schools, the middle schools, the colleges here in our county. Um, we're just really proud to serve Clark County. It's a it's a great area and, um, you know, really proud of our employees. They believe in the mission and, and uh, I just, it's great. Kind of rolls up into why we were system of the year. I think it has a lot to do with our community and our people. That's wonderful, Sean. And you've been there how long? Is that my third year this month? That's what I thought. Yeah. And prior to this year in Foothills? I was in uh, Fort Worth actually. Fort I, mean, Worth. I mean, Fort Worth. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I worked for uh, Paul Ballard, uh, one of the uh, greatest mentors on planet earth. Um, he was amazing, uh, amazing leader to, to work with and uh, gave me a lot of free reign. I was the chief operating officer down there and, uh, you know, he, he uh, mentored me quite a bit and, and gave me a lot of room to, to do what I wanted to do and what I needed to do and uh, very proud of his work there and in Denver. He's doing a great job. Yeah, I visited him uh, while he was there uh, in Fort Worth and got to have him on the show and I've known him for years. Just one of the real stalwarts of our industry. I would agree with you. Yeah, uh, speaking of stalwarts of the industry, uh, your, this episode will be airing uh, on the week of July 8th. And just prior to this, I interviewed Doug Kelsey from TriMet, who is your partner from just across the border, I guess. Now, do you guys work a lot together between your agencies? We do. <clears throat> I think uh, the one vision that we share is this idea of a true regional transportation system that really fit into my vision and, and what I wanted to do when I came here because I had experienced that uh, in Fort Worth with Gary Thomas and Paul and uh, our friends at DCTA to the north. So when we came here, it had that very similar feel to it with uh, yeah. and TriMet and Portland Streetcar. Uh, and really, how do we make that system seamless? Um, as, as we all have our own brand identity, we really want the transit aspect of it to be synonymous with the three brands. Uh, overall, even though we each have our own particular brand. And I think we do a really good job of that. I, I, I love Doug's leadership. I think he uh, does an excellent job of, of, of steering that ship over there. And that's a, that's a lot of people. That's a big system. 
Um, so, you know, we're, we're glad that we have that partnership with them. It works out very well. And you run, in addition to your own local bus service and uh, kind of dial-a-ride connector and the paratransit, you run regional express routes into Portland, right? We do. Actually, uh, the one stat that I always tell everyone that, that catches them off guard a little bit is not only are we one of the largest public transit systems in Washington, we're the fourth largest public transit system in the state of Oregon. <laughs> hey, that's pretty good, man. <laughs> and then you have a bus rapid transit service, right? The Vine? We do. <clears throat> We opened the Vine in uh, January of 2017. Uh, we continue to see uh, an amazing increase in ridership on that. And when I came on board uh, in June of 2017, my first initiative was to have the board sign off on immediate movement into our second BRT on our second largest corridor. Um, we're at about 59%. Um, we've got one piece that we still need to work out before we can have the FTA come in and review our project. Um, but Due to some of the issues we've experienced with COVID, they realigned some of the 2019 dollars at FTA and they actually awarded our $25 million through the Small Starts, New Starts program uh, mm. to agency pending completion of the work we need to do with uh, the FTA. So once they sign off on it, we'll have access to the money right there. We won't have to get into the queue for that. Well, that's good. Well, um... I hope to be able to visit your system. I was, Brent was trying to, Brent Ritchie, who works with you, was trying to set up a, uh, a visit for me with a, several systems over there with, uh, with both your systems. And of course, then COVID-19 hit what we're going to do it this spring. And so hopefully uh, once we're, maybe next spring, once we're up and traveling again and everybody's good to go, I'd love to come ride your BRT and see the system. It'd be awesome. Yeah, come out. You're more than welcome. Thanks, man. So tell me about... Um, uh, you know, ridership and what was happening as you were headed into 2020 and then the gut punch of COVID, what happened then? Yeah, so I think we as an agency were bucking the trend a little bit that we were in our third straight year of ridership increase, um, probably heading into our fourth year. And as we were getting ready to construct our second BRT, we assumed that over the next five to six years, we were going to continue to see an increase in ridership. Um, COVID hit us pretty hard. Uh, we were in a state that took um, some preemptive action fairly quickly. And, and, and from a standpoint of our customers and our community, I, I appreciate um, what, the, what those agencies did to sort of uh, try to stop everything pretty soon and see if they could contain that uh, pandemic. But uh, we saw a pretty immediate hit to uh, ridership, specifically in our commuter service. Uh, they pretty much shut down the Portland Metroplex. So that's about uh, three to 4,000 riders a day that were pulled right out of the system. Um, interestingly enough, what we found out through the pandemic was uh, traffic as a whole dropped about 60 to 65 percent. Our local service only dropped about 40 percent in the beginning and we're right now hovering right around 25 to 30 percent below what our normal local service is. Uh, in fact, uh, we continue to see one of the lower end uh, decreases in ridership as compared to some of our other counterparts in the Washington area. And, um, those that were affected pretty hard by COVID. Um, so it kind of speaks volumes of Clark County's reliance on public transportation, at least on the local part of it. Um, That's good. Yeah. Obviously, that, our paratransit is taking It's better a than a lot of numbers I've heard. I mean, uh, you know, if you're back up to 75, 80%, man, that's amazing. Yeah, and you know, our, our paratransit, so we're still probably an, on overall ridership in the 55, 60 percentile range, but a great deal of that is some of our commuter service daily and then our paratransit still taking a pretty good hit. But the local service is it's holding pretty steady. And as a result of that, we kept full service on the street. 
um, from day one. I mean, we, we eventually backed off of some of our commuter routes. So we've got an adjusted schedule slightly on our commuter service into Portland, but our local service is uh, running at 100%. And did you keep charging fares, uh, let people enter through the front door, or did you switch off there? So we switched off. Um, we never really stopped collecting fare, but when we switched to rear door boarding, um, we just stopped enforcing the fare. So if, so if it was impossible for someone to get to the fare box, uh, we, we understood that we weren't going to collect fare in that manner. <clears throat> if someone still paid their fare on the BRT, which does not occur at the fare box, it's on the platform. Um, we, we, uh, wanted that. We hoped that would happen. We advised our fare enforcement officers not to ask anyone for fare on the BRT until we were able to uh, really get a hold on what we were trying to do. We actually just reinstated uh, our enforcement affair this past Sunday. Um, so we are boarding through the front door again, but when we did that, we did, we went rear door boarding only uh, and we chained off the front of the bus for the operator so that uh, passengers couldn't get through there unless they needed had a mobility device and they could uh, board through the front door and be strapped down or uh, be able to hold their walker somewhere where they're not um, having to board through the back door. But, right. So how did this impact your agency financially? And you know, how did the care, how much money did you get with CARES Act and how's that gonna do for you? Yeah, so the CARES Act actually has helped us out quite a bit. Uh, we received a little over $15 million in CARES Act funding. Um, this, this past month, we actually got our numbers back for June. Um, it shows a little over a 20% decline in sales tax revenue. Uh, and without the collection of fare, uh, it was uh, probably another half a million a month that we were missing out on. So the CARES Act money definitely has helped bridge the gap between money that we want to hold in the bank uh, from the local revenue source and then be able to supplement that CARES Act revenue for deferred maintenance costs or uh, cost of operation um, so we can really defer that local sales tax money into the bank and, and figure out what we need to do later. And has this had any impact on your capital purchases like buses and things like that or are you still moving forward with? Yeah, we're, we're very fortunate that um, we, you know, and I, and I have to give uh, a shout out to Jeff Ham, who was the CEO before I was here. Did a very good job of being uh, fiscally prudent. And uh, we, we had a, a pretty good sized chunk of money in the bank when COVID hit. All of that money was allocated, so we did have to stop some projects. Uh, the only project right now that's going forward is our match for the our second BRT line. So that money's already been set aside and guaranteed. Uh, we did have a couple of capital projects. One of the big ones for us was a new operations and maintenance facility that we've needed for a while. Our original building was built for uh, 50 buses. You know, we've quadrupled, you know, four or five yeah. times that number uh, in our current condition in terms of vehicles and employees. So we're uh, working out of a few modular trailers in addition to the old administrative office. Uh, so we, we needed to build a new facility over at our headquarters and we um, had to put that That's project. Yeah, I'd like to think it'll happen eventually. I mean, I'll, at some point in time, it's going to have to. Uh, we actually removed our administration from the operations portion of the of the operations property and bought about a 40,000 square foot office space from uh, the, the forestry office about a mile away from our, our uh, operations and maintenance facility. So, you know, I'm hoping that we'll be able to get back and do that. I think our employees deserve that and they need a nice facility to work out of. And for the purpose of expansion, you know, we, we need to, to be in a position prime to do that. So 
at some point in time when things uh, sort of get back to normal, I'm hoping that uh, they'll stabilize and we'll be able to push forward with that project. That's good. And um, how do you think, well, let me ask you, did the uprisings uh, and the you know community stuff, did that affect you all much there? Uh, I think it does on a lot of levels. I, I think is a, I think there's uh, definitely been some um, concerns over in Portland, but I would say uh, as a Metroplex, it's been, uh, it's, it's been in the right direction. I think, um, you know, the message has been very good. It's been very clear. Um, there has not really been a lot of unrest. It's, it's really more of a community gathering and community coming together. And I think uh, internally, we had a great deal of conversation about, you know, we do a very good job through our human resources department and how we train our managers on um, tough issues that impact our community between um, systematic racism and um, equality and, and equity and quality of life and how those three things on a platform, they're really not mutually exclusive. They should really be a call for action, not necessarily a call for conversation because we talk a lot about those things, but how do we as an agency act on them? And I think uh, the thing that we've really taken out of uh, recent events are we have such an amazing platform, not only for uh, our passengers, but really for our employees. And how are we using that platform uh, to help policy reform? How are we helping that platform to uh, support community? And we know that uh, we have that opportunity in conjunction with our local law enforcement. And we know they, they work good for us and they do a great job. Um, how can we really come together as, as community, civic, and public leaders, try to get the right voices at the table and use our platform as a public transit agency to talk externally about things that we talk a lot about internally. Um, so I, I would say, you know, I've been very pleased with uh, the way the community has responded in terms of um, the way they want to the, spread their message and I think they've done it the right way and I'm, I'm really proud of our community for that. I'm proud of our community members and um, I'm anxious to see what comes out of it. That's great, that's beautiful. So what do you see going forward now for your agency uh, coming out of COVID-19 and uh, do, do you see a, um, you know, by the end of the year, you'll be back full steam ahead or, or, or what mitigation efforts are you working on, et cetera? Yeah, I would like to think so. Um, you know, when. When we forecasted some of our numbers out in 2020, I think uh, we have a pretty good realization that 2020 is gonna be a wash. Um, we're really not gonna see that full return to ridership that we want. I think for us, it's more of a matter of what does the first six months of 2021 look like, uh, both in terms of either community growth or projects that were in motion, not necessarily for CTRAN, but in the county or the community at large. Are they still moving forward? Are they still in motion? Are we seeing a rebound of that tax dollar? The expansion that we've seen in our county is huge compared to some of the other places that I've had the opportunity to work. And we continue to see this growth of multifamily housing. We continue to see this growth of education sector, technology, healthcare, and they wanna move over to Clark County because the cost of living is a little bit more competitive than it is over in the Portland market. And uh, so we want to see that continuation of those uh, those projects. We, we, we don't want them to fall off as a result of COVID. And I think they will continue forward because 
a lot of the projects have a lot more to do with quality of life than um, than just projects for the sake of doing projects. I mean, they're uh, multifamily housing for uh, you know mixed cost, mixed rent. Um, how to, one thing we don't have a lot of around here is apartment buildings or townhouses, and so there's a big focus on how do we provide affordable housing for the community. Um, you know, those things are really important. They're a little bigger than uh, retail for the sake of retail. And, and, and you're seeing, in addition to that, you're seeing a lot of retail explosion across the county. Uh, a lot of houses are being built. Uh, the population continues to grow rapidly. So I think we're in a good position where we may see some short-term pain, but in the long run, I think it's going to stabilize itself. And, uh, you know, public transportation is going to be a big piece of that, uh, especially with our second BRT. On our first BRT, we saw almost... 100 to $150 million in economic development as a result of us putting a BRT line uh, on our major corridor. Uh, and that corridor has uh, everything you could possibly want to have an awesome, uh, really that perfect transit uh, scenario of multifamily housing, retail, a college campus, um, high schools, and really everything you could possibly want that's an economic driver sits on that, on that, uh, on that Fourth Plain Boulevard. So when we move over to our second BRT, it will connect us to the other college campus. And so it just has all the makings of uh, more economic development. So I, I really feel like uh, our county's primed to pull out of it. I feel really good about it and I'm, I'm pretty excited about the future. Very good. Well, thanks for sharing with us about it today, how you were managing through and recovering from COVID and the, the great plans you have there at C-Train. We wish you the very best. Thank you. This is Mike Bismeyer, Regional Sales Director of Proterra, and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about random acts of kindness, mentorship, and leadership in the hopes that it'll inspire you to pay it forward. Mentorship and kindness, how does it parlay? Well, it's simple. Giving time or sharing knowledge to new employees or workplace peers is one of the simplest ways we can become a mentor by default. As I've noted in the past, the best mentors and some of the most influential mentors in my life didn't even know they were mentoring. And the commonality is that all these are simply attributes of people that are kind as well. When we talk about random acts of kindness, for example, we often think of making a difference for those less fortunate, in need, sick, charities of choice, or in our local communities, which are all exemplary examples of how we can make a difference. But it is no different in the workplace environment. Mentors are not only great leaders, coworkers, or valued peers, but they are kind people. The act of mentorship itself is an act of kindness. I enjoy working with new employees and always have, and just this past week participated in training of one of our newest employees, only days into their Proterra journey. If we look around us, we all have many opportunities to mentor, share our insights, and help others be successful, less apprehensive, and gain confidence in their roles. I challenge you to get involved, and if your company does not have a current mentorship program, perhaps initiate that discussion. And in the meantime, perhaps see where you may be able to assist with new employee onboarding, lateral promotion preparation, or just generally making yourself available for other employees to bounce ideas off and ask questions. Mentorship is mutually beneficial, empowering and enabling, just like kindness. And kindness is cool. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Alea Carey, a communications professional who loves working with public transit agencies. 
I was listening recently to Paul's interview with Doug Kelsey. He's CEO and general manager of TriMet in Portland, Oregon. Doug and Paul were talking about the challenges of making strategic decisions in the ever-shifting, often crisis-driven environment of the COVID-19 era. Doug said something, it was almost in passing, but it really struck in, stuck in my mind. He said that just because a decision is made quickly doesn't mean it can't be strategic. That got me thinking about the best ways to make thoughtful, reasoned decisions that help accomplish long-term goals, even in the midst of high-pressure environments. The best way I've seen that accomplished is to check your decisions against your organizational values. Most of us have these, and many of, this, many of us have them articulated, and we've enshrined them in places like logos and signage and email signatures and the like. But we don't talk much about how the actual strategic communications plan itself fits with our values. These things might include, do the press outlets you share your stories with share your values? What about the companies who take your advertising dollars? Do they represent values you want to be supporting with that money? Fitting your values to your strategic communications plan could also include who speaks for you. What representatives of your organization embody your values? Is it more consistent with your values for your leadership to speak for everyone? Or is it more consistent to have staff or operators or even community transit advocates share your message? And finally, something to bear in mind, even in the very public service-oriented world of public transit. Are you making sure your values govern how you communicate with your internal team as much as they affect how you talk to the public? If you'd like to talk about the relationship between values and your communication strategy or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. Hi, this is Tim Tyron. I'm the Chief Safety Officer at the Maryland Department of Transportation, Maryland Transit Administration, and Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm so honored to be a part of Paul Comfort's number one best-selling book, The Future of Public Transportation. In Paul's book, I have chapter four, The Future of Safety. What is safety? Asks an anonymous voice on the conference line. That's a good question to ask in transit because there are so many different opinions on what the definition of safety should be. Now, there is no question on who is responsible for safety, right? If you answered the safety department, then we have a lot of work to do together to change that view in 2020. Safety is everyone's responsibility and is always the top priority, the first thought in any decision-making process. There's no question about that, is there? Safety should be more than that though. It should be a core value you hold in your heart and at the very heart of your organization from the top to the bottom. Now several seconds of awkward silence passed after the question was asked. I then confidently answered the question on the call with an answer that probably sounded long-winded. I proclaimed, safety is the proactive identification of hazards and risks with mitigations implemented to either eliminate or reduce those risks 
to as low as possible in the operation to keep our people and our customers free from harm. I think I heard 10 more seconds of silence after I spoke up. Eventually I heard a, sounds good to me, by a timid, unfamiliar voice. I immediately thought I needed to rephrase my definition. I went against my rule of keeping all things simple. I went on to say that safety is all about risk management. We can't run a transportation operation without zero risks. So let's do everything we can to identify hazards and risks before they become something unsafe and unacceptable. Let's do everything we can to truly run a safe operation where everyone in the organization knows their role in safety and feels supported to speak up when something doesn't look quite right to stop bad things from happening. You see, safety really is about so many different things. Simply put, in my humble opinion, safety is about managing risk. One thing is certain though, safety in mass transit is evolving at a rapid pace. I come to the wonderful world of mass transit from the ultra safe world of commercial aviation. I spent almost 30 years with a major airline. The last position I held in aviation was that of safety management system manager, SMS manager and technical operations. My job was partly focused on change management processes and completing safety risk assessments to ensure any unforeseen, unintended consequences with proposed changes were identified and mitigated before they had a chance to become reality. This ensured the success of many projects. But I must tell you, when a project wasn't implemented because the safety risk assessment showed levels of unacceptable risk that could not be mitigated to an acceptable level, I celebrated those no-go project decisions even more. I became a true believer in SMS when I saw how it, the system and its processes, prevented bad things from happening repeatedly. SMS also knocked down departmental silos, improved cross-departmental communications, and empowered all employees to report hazards with ever-increasing numbers over time without the fear of management retaliation. SMS in aviation is maturing. It is making it an already extremely safe way to travel even safer. The great news is that SMS is coming to transit with the federal requirement of the new Public Transportation Agency Safety Plan, otherwise known as PTASP, 49 CFR Part 673. The many benefits that aviation has enjoyed for over a decade with their safety management systems in place will also benefit mass transportation. It's where we are going now with mass transit safety, and it's why I am here as the Chief Safety Officer at the Maryland Department of Transportation, Maryland Transit Administration. I hope you will enjoy reading the rest of my words in Chapter 4, The Future of Safety in the Future of Public Transportation. I encourage you to pick up the book and please be safe.